Let's go ahead and move in to Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, and then we'll be moving through other component parts of the scriptures so that we can gain and glean insight. So Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, this regards the day of Pentecost. It is a commissioning of the disciples just prior to his ascent into heaven. It is something that occurred within 40 days following his resurrection. For some of you that don't know that, the Lord returned and still walked among men. He made visitations. He continued to encourage and exhort. And this was all preparatory. And ultimately for this day that we're going to look at, that would have come 10 days later. It would have been uh, 50 days total. And it is interesting because um, there was a mandate from God that in the 50th year, the 50th year of a man's life in a cycle in which they may have had an indentured servant or they may have had equity that had been turned over to them from those indebted to them. The 50th year was the year of Jubilee in which both the servant and the debts, the servant was dismissed for freedom and liberty and the, the debt was paid was no longer on the other person's account, the debtor. And that's pretty exciting. Though it was 50 years in which freedom and liberty would be given, 50 days represents the time in which liberty and freedom will be given and the opportunity for those in liberty and freedom would be given the spirit in a beautiful work of empowerment. So that's kind of cool. One of the things that you need to know is when it came close to that 50th year, there were people that felt <laughs> that was difficult to oblige. The debt hadn't been paid and they've rather come accustomed to enjoying their servants or many servants, the servants' quarters. And so it is interesting that God's heart was always to release those in captivity, both to one over them and to the debt that was perhaps waiting upon them. Those are pictures of what Jesus came to do, to set the captives free, to grant them an opportunity to live an abundant life. And so you can imagine what that would be like for the person realizing, wow, in 10 more days, I'm free. I'm free. But on some of those countdowns, when the 50th year marked by a given day occurred, and they weren't released and the debt wasn't forgiven, you can imagine the weight and heartbreak of that. But indicative in this passage today it is what is known as a promise from the Lord, and it is represented in the Spirit of God. 
And there's no taking back his promise. There's no shirking on what he had pledged to his people. That's good. Where we are promise breakers, even though we intend to be promise keepers, we don't have to worry about that with regard to Jesus. So in Acts chapter 1, I'm going to pick this up in verse 8. And that is this. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Great words from the Lord. This would have been encouraging to them, not fully aware of what it meant, but they certainly couldn't refute that the one who's speaking it to them, they saw manifest in power by the Spirit and the things that they had witnessed personally. And in verse 9, as he had spoken to them, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Verse 10, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now, these aren't simply just men. They are angelic majesty. They are messengers sent from God to give instructions to these men, even though they had been told by the Lord, sufficient enough for them to operate in it, he was reminding them, it's time to get on with your lives now in Christ. It's time to move out into ministry. I would think that the ascension of the Lord would have been an incredible experience to have not only watched, but to have gawked almost timelessly. We had many people moving towards their computers or TV sets to witness the launching of a rocket sending two men into space. It's a fascinating science that we could do that. And it's been a long time, I think some 11 years since that was last done by the uh, space shuttles. And so we're doing it again. And so we had gawkers and onlookers, and it was fascinating. Some missed it, some here missed it. What they won't miss, though, is the fulfillment of what Jesus said he would do. We'll miss the things that people say they're going to do, and they're going to do it at such and such a time, and we're thinking about it, and we're planning on it, but we can miss it. Well, good news for us, we can do replays. There's something different, though, in this. This was an occasion. It was extraordinary. And those who would not be present at it, to some degree, would miss it. If they weren't here when he was talking with his disciples, and it seems to be there was a specific number of them, that's not going to be repeated again. The ascension of Jesus from earth to heaven will not be repeated. Likewise, in what we are reading about now and able to discover concerning the satisfaction of the Spirit, that's not going to re 
repeat itself in the manner by which he came. For this group of cloistered disciples in an upper room waiting upon the Lord. In what he said, they were to wait for. And that was the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. So you may say, well, if that's true, then why are we making such a faithful fuss of the day of Pentecost and uh, reminding ourselves of it? I mean, if there's nothing big that's going to come about of it, and if it's really just biblical sentiment, then is it worth the bother? And so I would say absolutely, because we're putting ourselves in remembrance of what God, in fact, came through on. You see, very often anxiety and depression relate to disappointment after disappointment after spiritual depletion. That can still happen even to strong believers. So when we come back to the word of an historical account that in fact was satisfied by the promise of God as he said he would do it, it encourages us because God cannot lie. We may not appreciate the patience that has to be exercised as God makes good on his word, but we are to be encouraged in what he has said regarding his word. This was a real life event. This would be the birthing of a church. Now, some would say, well, I've heard that pointed to with regard to Calvary, the death of Jesus. Well, that's what we would call the breaking of the water. This is going to be a breaking of literally the Holy Spirit. It would be the move of the Holy Spirit to bring a deliverance, this work of the church. It has with it the component parts of the groanings and the urgings and the pushings and the not fully understanding a woman, at least who has given birth, has an understanding of the process. Guys will probably never be credited with having understanding of the birthing process, even if we are with our spouses and we are there during the delivery and ultimately the baby being put on the woman. We are truly, as men, quite clueless. We haven't really ever been required to suffer in that sense. We really haven't been. The extraordinary work of God in creating a new life within the womb, nine months, and the tribulation within the trimesters, we, we don't know with regard to that. We can be a support to our spouses. We'll never be able to experience, though, that incredible dunamis or dynamic within the body to bring forth birth, life. Now, in the same sense, there was a dynamic related to the Holy Spirit. And he wasn't, by the way, groaning and pushing and, and having contractions. But the church would. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is being given to each person as individuals, but as a grouping or body of one and uniquely working in each person for that. Now, we don't fully understand how that all transacted in terms of everybody's opinion about it. 
and really what they felt concerning it, or even the effectiveness once they did receive it. We just know that it was a happening, and it was a divine happening. As the book of Acts is telling us that he went up into heaven, and the angels right now are going to give these disciples a directive, and it basically is, as he went up, you watching him gaze, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. We know that in Revelation that he will be coming on the clouds and with his saints. So it's going to have a unique difference, but a similarity in terms of the dynamics of how it occurred. We've seen some movies that try to capture this. And it's awkward to capture because it was truly a spiritual dynamic, which was a momentary connection between the realm of the unseen and the temporal realm of the seen. But some have tried to show it as Jesus just vaporizing. Some have shown it as him like a lightning bolt, just, you know, or warp speed like in Star Wars or whatever. It says that he was caught up into a cloud. It doesn't say he was vacuumed up. It doesn't say anything about that. And so I suspect that in this particular manifestation of the Lord having satisfied his tenure on earth, giving the commission to his disciples, it literally was a cloud that lifted him up. And I believe that in the lifting of a cloud, they would have been able to see him until he disappeared. And so was he surrounded by the cloud? We don't know. We don't know. But they marveled. And most importantly now is that they need to move out in the expectation that is upon them, obedience that has been asked of them. And now where do they go? And this is where it comes into that because it says in verse 12, then they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet. So it's a familiar mountain. He gave some of his greatest sermon there. Greatest sermon. And it says, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. So one of the things you need to understand, this wasn't a long walk because you were limited on the Sabbath as to how far you could walk. So this is really just a small uh, space that they had to cover, not violating the Sabbath, but to find a place for them to cloister. This is where we come in verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. This is who we know some of the main characters are. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So it's not the Judas that you might think. It's Judas, the son of James. I'll bet some of you would say, man, I wouldn't want that name. <laughs> he's got the name, but he's also got an identifier not to be confused, and that is that he is the son <coughs> of James. There are, it says in verse 14, or these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in verse 13, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, and it says, 
Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, and I'm going to pause there because it moves into actually a business meeting right now. They're exercising in the devotional discipline of just waiting on the Lord. And they're involved in prayer and supplications. So it would be, from our perspective, seeing it, a church service. Oh, they won't call it that. It's not going to be actually acknowledged as a church until later on as the church matures. But for what we would see it as, I bet it would have a similarity in which we would find agreement concerning that. They're all there. The ones that indeed were the closest as disciples, the women were very much involved in ministry in some particular way, specific ways. But together there's 120 and, and there's not revelation as to who they are, not in full. So I kind of have an idea of what 120 people look like. And that's fairly formidable, especially where we went to Jerusalem and saw what has been historically noted, seemingly irrefutable as the upper room. Changes have been made to it over the many thousands of years, but it nevertheless has been cited. So I can see that place in my mind, and it could hold 120 rather snugly, in my opinion. No social distancing there. That's the kind of place that we would see. And so in this time, and notice the word there is that as they're continuing, it says in one accord, in prayer and supplication, means they're together on this. They're not divided. Why here? Why so long? Why so short? Who are you? I don't even know you. <laughs> that can happen in churches. It indicates they're in unanimity. They're united they're not separated on the issue, which is the main act of obedience in waiting for the Lord. Now, though they know that there is going to be a work, it is not yet clear with regard to that. And by the way, as they're here, remember, it was 40 days that the Lord was... <clears throat> upon earth and when he was taken up from the earth in the cloud. So what we need to understand right now is somewhere in this section of scripture, there's a 10-day countdown, okay? We didn't just jump to the 10th day right now, meaning that they are consistently meeting. The meaning is they're consistently meeting and they are doing so with the expectancy of something happening, would they have known with regard to the day of Pentecost in the 10th day? For them, it could have been simply, oh, well, we'll be celebrating the law coming up in 10 days. And for them, it might have been, huh, well, okay, that's what we'll do then. So in many ways, their faith would be exercising, watching the clock going, man, there's going to be another feast. There's going to be another holy convocation expected of the people. We were kind of hoping this would be done, you know, with not so much attention drawn to it. Why? Because they were still probably in a state of fear on what's going to happen when all of a sudden 
people's eyes are going to be looking to see what we're doing and the message that we're still now speaking carefully, but we're speaking a message secretively, but we are speaking a message. And so this 10 day could be a sweat for them. Sure hope the Lord's going to come on this one. How's he going to come? Mm, he didn't. He didn't really say specifically. He he was he was going to give the promise. Though you remember that? Oh yeah, the promise, the promise. Well, he's good on his promises. What's it going to look like? Not sure. Not sure necessarily on this one. It's voiced as the spirit. Well, okay. What's that look like? We're not sure. <laughs> but we must wait. And isn't that cool? Because for them, it was running neck and neck with what would be a holy convocation that's going to involve a lot of people. Since this was one of the mandated holy convocations, three of them, they had probably an inclination, this could be really big. This could really drown out, you know, the work that God said he's going to do. I mean, this could be so big that we're going to miss it altogether. We'll get distracted or swallowed up in it. What happens if we do miss it because of our requirement to participate on that day? What if the Lord just delays in a way in which? And so we leave it there because this is what we find out, that with precision it will happen on that day and the Lord's making a picture. You see, back in Exodus 32... And I'm going to ask you to return there to me, holding your place here. But we want to see some linkage. Moses had been called up to the mountains for 40 days, 40 nights, to bring back with him the stone tablets of the law, what we call the Ten Commandments. God clued him in that in his absence, the people were misbehaving badly. Unlike spiritual creatures, they were in carnality. And the camp was split between those who were misbehaving, violating God's ordinances, and those who had a heart to see that honorable behavior would be played out. And it's actually just a specific group of people that will take that charge of a judgment that the Lord will require of Moses to issue. Bad behavior, consequences will happen. And in fact, Moses was so angry with what he was ultimately finding out about their behavior that he took the Ten Commandments and threw them down. But the consequence of the bad behavior was instituted just at about verse 28 because the Lord said on behalf of his heart, thus says the Lord God of Israel, this is 27, let every man put his sword on his side, go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. And so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Notice the number, 3,000 fell. It was an accurate count. And the sword has an important 
symbolic play here too. In imagery that was literally authentic swords that were used as instruments of judgment. In the New Testament, the sword is likened as unto the Spirit or the Word of God. When we hold our Bibles, it is a sword in our hands, but it's not a sword of destruction. It's a sword of protection for us. And it's very interesting. In one sense, God was protecting his reputation in the severity of violating the Ten Commandments that were yet to be handed over to them. But the bottom line is, is rather than like the disciples in the day of Pentecost, they did not wait for their shepherd. They did not wait in the terms of what it means to honor God in what seemingly is his absence, 3,000 fell. Okay, so let's return then back to Acts and find out what happens when the Spirit fell upon these who exercising a waiting, right? Waiting upon the Lord, waiting for the Lord, not commiserating, not consenting to sin, but in discipline, in prayer, supplication, and one accord are waiting for the Lord. The majority in Israel did not wait. Certainly 3,000 is not the majority. But it seemed to be sufficient to remedy the sin. Because sin requires death. That was the picture. But grace requires life that is given. An empowerment to live life. So in Acts chapter 2, as the meeting had continued, and the idea here consistently in this 10-day period, consistently, I hope that that's what we're all doing, being consistent in the wait. Chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Isn't that an awesome statement? No factions, no divisions, no griping. They're still there. Are you guys still there? Is the church still there? Are we waiting? Are we getting along? Are we getting torn apart by politics and passions? We could be. We're being tested. There's a trial going on. And no doubt the Lord has allowed us to be called into that trial to answer in his name. And hopefully it's not to answer for our behavior. Unless that behavior is so extraordinary, the world wants to know, how do you guys hold your peace? How is it that you have your confidence? Where is it that you get your hope from? Why are you guys so strong when we are so weak? It's been week after week after week after week after week after week, month by month, here we are. And we are just pining away. What is it that gives you strength to endure this? For some, this violation of the Constitution, this violation of the Bill of Rights, this violation of liberty and freedom that I deserve, no doubt those can be argued. But the ones that can withstand it are those who are standing in the promises of God, standing with the Lord and obeying Him. That's why I said are you still with the Lord? Are you still a part of the body? 
Or has something else grabbed your attention? It would have been their free choice to be in this place. Because obviously communal living in the sense that we understand it probably wouldn't have taken place. The women would have dispersed after the days or hours. The day concluded. The hours of prayer were through. They would have dispersed. The disciples would have been there. Would have been more very likely a fraternity. How many of the men remained out of the 120? And we don't know necessarily how many beyond the women mentioned. But it could be a very limited number of the women who had a personal, vested, ministerial responsibility with the disciples, with Jesus. But they're all there, one accord. And this is what we see in verse 2. In that one place, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Sitting is a picture word of attending to doctrine and discipline. It's not saying standing doesn't, but usually the, implica the implication of sitting in the Greek is, is attentively uh, on the mark. You are a student in a time in which instruction is being given to you. You're ruminating over the previous assignments. You're taking cues of what assignments are yet to be completed and satisfied as the teacher has left a particular set of requirements. And in the passing of that, then what would be known as uh, getting your work done, you do what? You please your teacher. So what is this that's happening right now? On the day of Pentecost, it is the satisfaction that the Lord said would come in the giving of the promise. What's the promise? Okay, so that's the mystery right now. But this is a picture too. This doesn't indicate that a hurricane is coming into the place. I'm not saying that a wind didn't blow. But nobody's getting their robes mustered. No one's having their hair needing to be combed. It is as the rush of a mighty wind. It seems to be very audible. But remember, as the Holy Spirit is given, it is not only with power, but is also with gentility. Because the Spirit is gentle, but he's also powerful. How can you separate the two? Jesus was all-powerful, but he was meek and lowly. The Spirit and Jesus are not contrary to one another. They are complementary. Why? They are God. The God represented as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one. They never do anything that contradicts who uniquely they are represented in the Godhead. So the manifestation of the Spirit which the Hebrews would recognize as the Ruach in the Old Testament. And the Greek language would represent the Pneuma, spirit. They both mean the same thing. For those that study language, they are identical, just different in their etymology. 
one being Hebrew, the other being Greek. Same effect, same meaning. Where do we get a picture of that? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis, you'll see a picture of the Holy Spirit too. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved or hovered over the surface of the waters. What were the waters indicative there? They were troubled waters. They weren't a glassy, flat lake body of water. It was troubled waters. Something cataclysmic had happened, and there was a brooding work of the Holy Spirit moving. In what way? Creatively moving. Not in the sense of, what do we do now? What do I do now? What has been done now? We spend very often a lot of time trying to calculate what do we do now, what has been done now. We can see that in civil unrest. It's wrong what is being done in answering a wrong that has been done. It is a cataclysmic expression of sin, a violation of the intentional creative work of the Lord to make government a stabilizing force for peace and civility. People getting along in one accord. Why aren't they getting along in one accord? Well, because they're not in one accord unless they're one with God. And they're not one with God unless they are one with His Spirit. And they are not one with His Spirit unless they have agreed that Jesus is Lord, Savior. God has terms of peace for those who accept His peace. Then they are filled with his peace. These people in the upper room, there's no doubt that they have the peace of God that keeps them in one accord. And when it says one accord, it meant that there was no disunity. As a result of their obedience and their harmony, they are now in the manifestation of the promise being given. And so it advances. Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven, again, as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is very much a dynamic that is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. But it is interesting, too, because we can trace this to a area that I think is important to look on. And so I'm going to, um, I'm going to ask you to go to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. This is Jesus talking personally to someone who did not have a personal relationship with him. We would call him, though highly intellectual and seemingly very spiritual, outside of a saving relationship with God. And so this is Nicodemus, and this area is known as the passages of the new birth. 
But in verse 5 is where we see this. Most, assur most assuredly, Jesus answers, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, the Ruach, the Numa, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So what the Spirit is doing is giving to those disciples, if you would, a rebirth experience. Could they be disciples without being born again? Well, the dynamics of how the Spirit work is just now being understood and introduced to them. Because we'll look a little bit further down in this account and find out what Jesus had done with some of them already. What you need to understand is that the Spirit was with men. The Spirit, only by a select few, was upon men. It was never within men. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit was with men, and the Spirit would come upon men, but the Spirit wasn't indwelling in men. They were exercising in a faith that God found acceptable. They were obeying the laws. They were used incredibly. In the New Testament, though, the Spirit is with men, and the Spirit would be given to them, meaning he would indwell within them. And the Spirit in this case, as Jesus is saying, would be a part of an empowering work. The miracles that were performed by Jesus as God were imparted by the Spirit of God. They were powerful work. And so every component part of God, not only being with man, but being within man and coming upon man, is available to us as men, as women, if we are believers. That's what's so exciting about this study on the day of Pentecost. And so in verse um, 8, this is where we come into this visual again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear, do you hear that word? You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this is the word that Jesus is speaking now, manifested to those 120 that are in one accord. They hear it. They hear it, and it is no doubt a powerful hearing. And so when I hear something, I can sense the conveyance of power, even though I may not per se feel it. But what God did to confirm what they were hearing, which was of power, was he then manifested another aspect of the Holy Spirit, which was tongues of fire upon them. They couldn't see those tongues of fire upon them. They could only see it on another. It was the work of the Spirit, taking off what very often is our boasting points. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see it on me. Whew, I look good. I'm good. Powerful. They could see the manifestation of it upon others, and they were all together when they heard the manifestation of the power of the wind, the Ruach, the Numa. 
But this was altogether something new that was going to change all of them, not only altogether, but independently on how God was going to use them and dispersing them on this day in which the community would fill with people coming to this mandated holy convocation to worship God. The giving of the law. Oh, the giving of the law. We must worship God. Well, God actually said, I, I'm actually going to be doing something new in your heart because the law isn't bringing you close to me. It's killing you. And the only way that you can come close to me isn't by trying to satisfy the law, but it's coming into a relationship with me by the Son of God who died on behalf of you and who perfectly satisfied the law which you have failed miserably in. I don't want you to work at satisfying the law anymore. I want you to be a work in which my satisfaction in your life is evident by the Spirit of God, my Spirit, in you because of my Son. And because of that work, the Ruach, the Numa, all same, and the dynamics of meaning will make you altogether a new person. You're not going to tell which way it's going because you're not going to control the Spirit. The Spirit will be in control of you, but you'll have evidence that the Spirit of God is at work. Listen, listen, observe. So it's a cool imagery that's happening here. And the reason being is because of the occasion of this being Pentecost, there's going to be a great word that goes out. Okay, but let me take you to another passage of Scripture just so that we can anchor ourselves in what the Lord would do. So we're in the Gospel of John, right? But we're going to go back to Acts, but not yet. I want you to go to the end of the Gospel of John. I want you to go to chapter 20, and I want you to be in the 22nd verse. The Gospel of John chapter 20, the 22nd verse, but I'll precede it with 21. Beautiful verse. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Great! We're going up in a cloud. Mm, no. That's what I got to do. Again, I'm taking liberty on the dialogue. This was going to be something so much more important than being taken out of the world. This was about being influential in the world. And God was doing a work right now that in essence the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 is being given credit for among those 120. And here it is. Remember, the spirit with men, the spirit in men, the spirit upon men. The Old Testament saints didn't have the within, not that we can cite. They had the upon and the with. The within comes to the new covenant believer, the one who by the blood of Christ is able to draw near to God. And the residency, therefore, within the heart of man becomes a holy habitation. Back then, the 
blood of animal sacrifices couldn't do it. They were only picturing what was ultimately required by the Son of God as the Holy Lamb of God. So, as we know, in mathematics, it's three of three that makes one. Not two of three, not one of three. It's three of three. God's doing a three of three work right now, saying one. You guys are meeting in one accord. Hey, all of you guys right now, those who have been with me in these years of ministry, those who saw me ascend into heaven, I'm going to do something special for you. And this is what it says that he did. When he has said this, he breathed in or on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's where we're stopping there. Receive the Holy Spirit. This is called the filling of the Holy Spirit. It can also be interpreted as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But this is what we need to understand. This is the Lord himself personally setting a seal upon them. Meaning you're mine. You are mine and and I've got some things that you're going to do. You're going to be representing me in a special way. By the way, there are going to be others that are going to be drawn to me through you. And though I can't explain it to you at this time, you will see it if you are faithful in the time that remains for me to satisfy the mission that I yet have to complete. It's pretty cool because this is something, again, that Jesus has absolute confidence is going to take place. It's very evident that the book of Acts cites this beautiful, strong, vital work of the Spirit through those who have received the Spirit coming upon them, recognizing the work of the Spirit by what they could hear. And so they have been filled and now they have been empowered. So we move back to where we left off in Acts. And this is what I want you to see. So zip over with your eyes in chapter 2 as the indwelling of the Spirit has happened, the filling, the empowerment. They're doing what? They're speaking in a tongue that is foreign to them. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's evangelism now. Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims that are honoring God in a holy convocation. Celebrating the law, day of Pentecost. But this Pentecostal uh, convocation is altogether different because they're no longer going to be celebrating simply the law. They're going to be sep, sep <laughs> they're going to be celebrating <laughs> the work of God through the connecting of the prophecies of God, dating all the way back to Joel. They're going to see how the word of God written to them, that was a part of their orthodoxy, is now coming to pass right now. And Peter's the one that's got to share it. But he's not the only one that gets to share it because what's happening is there's an ecstatic language going on. So Peter's the only one that's going to be teaching doctrine. How that manifests itself to the ears of those who hear, we are not necessarily sure. But it is a work of the Spirit. Those who have had the fire rest upon them, and by the way, that would be the 120 in the room, are going to be translators of the message. And it's an ecstatic translation, meaning everything about what they say is bringing praise and glory to God. It's not prophecy. That's already been satisfied. 
They're living right now in the moment of prophecy. So it's not a thus saith the Lord moment. It's actually praise and adoration and glory in an unknown tongue to them, but in a relevant tongue to the people that they are nearby. 120 that are effectively being used as broadcasters of a dynamic message from the Spirit to give glory to God and the satisfaction of the evangel message concerning Jesus. Peter's the one that gives the sermon, though. So whether they all turned into then sign language specialists or whether God then gave a particular, if you would, discerning ear as the Spirit can give, we're not sure. But this is what happened when Peter's turn is to speak. He speaks to them this language, which is important for us to take note of. Verse 39 of chapter 2. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The sermon is much longer than that. But what he's saying is the promise. Who's the promise? The promise is the Spirit. The Spirit is the very manifestation of the indwelling of God in the form of empowerment to those who are following God. And then it moves in to talk about the vitality of the church. But the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So what's the effect of that? So you go to Joel. You can look it up in your <laughs> table of contents. Or just here where I'm reading from. This is Joel chapter 2 and at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. I'm going to stop there because there are some things now related to yet events to happen. But this event is documented. Peter actually cites it when he's being misunderstood concerning not being in his right state of mind. But he's perfectly in his right state of mind. He's in his righteous state of mind. He's in his empowered state of mind. He's speaking like an affluent scholar. And he's speaking with power to such degree that it says this. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, almost 3,000 souls were added to them. And you would be saying probably right now, hey, you already used that number. What is, I forgot. Why did you use that number? Because back when the law was given and the law was defied and the people of God defiled themselves carnally, 3,000 were judged, killed, removed from God's presence and literally 
the people that they would have persuaded to violate further God's ordinance and expectation of holiness. So God does this beautiful redemptive work here in which 3,000 are saved, but not by the law. They are saved by an outpouring of grace in the satisfaction of God in the giving of the promise represented by the Holy Spirit. And the word that Peter is using is empowered by the Spirit of God to touch the heart of men yet to make a decision, women yet to make a decision, children yet to make a decision, and 3,000 are saved. You need to understand the principle. Where one worked in the negative, the other works in the positive. Where one worked in the dubious, the other worked in the affirmative. In the New Testament, things are in the affirmative, in the unquestionable, in the certainty, in the hopeful, in the dynamic empowerment of satisfying for God's glory anything that he desires to do in our life as believers who, like these believers, waited patiently for the Lord until the day, what day? Until the day the Lord broke forth in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Not in earthquakes. That will happen. That's a different dynamics. Not in a hurricane. That will happen, but that's not in the dynamics right now. It's the heightened sensitivity that as the wind blows, not knowing where it's going to go, the Ruach, the Numa, exercising in both terminology as a manifestation of the Spirit of God. That's why very often people say, I believe the Lord's impressing me to move in this direction, to go in that area of ministry because I'm filled and I need to obey. And at times that can be a provocation of disappointments, but it shouldn't be. It's just that the Spirit privileges himself to disperse those whom he has filled and empowered to do the work that Peter right now is doing. We never saw in this text of Scripture, hey, why does Peter get to do it? He's already had some gaffes in his life. We know that he says actually things that are quite embarrassing, quite insulting. Why does he get to speak? Because the Spirit of the Lord does affirmative work through those who might be confirmed failures. That's a good word as well for us. Are you a confirmed failure by those who know you and your weaknesses? God would say, because of this event, you're an affirmed success. You will be an overcomer. You are going to be changing the disposition and minds of those who, much like you, have never really understood me. And though you could be cited on things that, in fact, were clumsy in what you said, what you did, you will not be clumsy on this day. You're going to be powerful. My spirit will be most impressive. And though you don't know this, but you will see it, in accordance to Joel chapter 2, 3,000 will be saved. Now, 3,000 wasn't given in Joel. This is the manifestation 
of what Joel was saying. Prophecy is going to flow. Spirituality is going to be unquenchable. As you continue to read through this, from 3,000, the church will grow to over 10,000 within weeks. And notice one of the other things with regard to this. They received the word gladly. On the day of Pentecost, we are to have a focus upon the Lord himself. We are to understand the work of the Holy Spirit himself. And we are to say, as we hold the word of God, I receive this word gladly. When that happens, then what the Lord chooses to achieve is remarkable. And there is, I believe, a remarkable work of God today. Why? Because it's the day? No, it's probably not exactly the day. But symbolically, it is our day to celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit. He's not less than Jesus. He's not less than the Father. They are one God, manifested in the distinctives of whom we know they have been revealed to us as. He's not just a third party. Somebody to just kind of, hmm, what do we do with him? We want him to do whatever pleases him and the authority that has been given to him and the distribution of gifts which are ours to receive. The day of Pentecost. Who would think of it? The churches to think of it. Because the world needs to be thinking about God. So we're excited to be able to have opportunity once again to meet together. When will that happen? Not sure. We're being respectfully compliant, but we're all on edge because of a desire to righteously assemble. There's stuff going on in the world today, riots that are breaking out. They need the Lord. The Spirit of God is ready to break out precisely on even such a day. Remember that Peter required, according to the word, that they be repenting of a perverse generation that they were a part of. And they said to themselves, in their hearts, that is what we need to do. And when that happens, as the Spirit breaks out, there is this extraordinary work a vital change within the hearts of people. So may this be encouraging to you. May you also knit this with Genesis chapter 11. I forgot to bring that in, but you'll see there that there was a one world <laughs> system. We are the world. We are the children, whatever that song was. It was an attempt about 20 years ago to uh, pull everybody together. But the only the only one capable of pulling the world together is Jesus by his word, by his spirit. So the laughter was sincere. Anything that we do apart from God, even though we have intentions of making it godly, is amiss, won't work. And it didn't work. 
None of it works without God. Nothing in your family will work without God. You won't be as effective as you can be if the Spirit of God is not upon you. And you will not truly be an effective minister if you have a heart to help and to serve, which God has given to you, but you're not linking it to the necessity of having a personal relationship with God. You know there are people that behave very godly. They're very good people, nice people. They want to do good things, but they yet do not have the relationship with God in a confession to the Lord saying, I want you to be in my life, the shepherd of my soul. If that's what the word of God says you are, then take your place. If you are the king of my life, then I want you to have dominion over my life. Death Pentecost is great. So getting back to the one world system in chapter 11, because it was a one world system, it was no longer able to focus uniquely and in one accord spiritually with God. And God saw that and said, this troubles me. This is now becoming a one world religion. And they no longer honor me or worship me. They're doing their own thing. I'm going to come down and I'm going to confuse their language. So the world at one time, Genesis chapter 11, had one language, but the language no longer was about God nor godly behavior. It was one language to do things contrary to God and to build up a religious system which is contrary to God. So we came down, confused the language. And why is that being linked? Because in Acts chapter 2, as we saw in 1 and its application in 2, the Spirit of God had come down and he took the confusion of languages and he made it one by the Spirit. Wait, they were distinctly different languages? About 14 or more different languages of those coming to have a spiritual encounter with God. Some of them understood economic language. Some of them understood Greek. Some of them obviously understood Latin, Aramaic. But they did not yet understand the voice of one spirit and one accord. But now they were able to hear in their own language, a language that previously had been, if you would, uniquely dividing nations. Now the Spirit of God was uniting nations, no longer divided over language, but united by the Spirit of God and the language that heaven had ordained for the message. Pretty cool, huh? I think so.